The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. Let's get into your headlines this hour. Russia and Ukraine prepare for a fresh round of peace talks in Turkey today. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky takes a harder line after initially signaling Kyiv could be ready to compromise. Our priorities in the negotiations are known. Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity are beyond doubt. Effective security guarantees for our state are mandatory. Our goal is obvious peace and the restoration of normal life of our native state as soon as possible. The White House continues its efforts to walk back an ad-libbed line in the president's Poland speech, saying the US is not targeting regime change in Russia, despite President Biden's comment. Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. For God's sake, this man cannot remain power. And Total Energy's CEO Patrick Fugonet vows not to do business with Putin but defends the oil giant's refusal to fully write off its Russian assets in a CNBC moderated panel at the Doha Forum. We created a situation where we are dependent on them. Why? Because it was a low-cost gas. So it's a lesson for all of us. Meanwhile, Qatar's foreign minister tells CNBC the country is boosting gas supplies to other nations amid the ongoing crisis in Ukraine, but that there are limits to what one country can do. No energy supplier can substitute the other. I think that the best way forward is diversifying the source of, of supply and diversifying the markets of, of selling. And Brent crude is currently trading 117.30, down 3.3 bucks, 2.78%, as mass testing of millions in Shanghai commences. Uh, with concerns about oil demand, this is China shuts its largest city in an effort to, to, uh, to keep its zero COVID policy. So welcome to the program this Monday morning and let's start with Ukraine. Ukrainian and Russian negotiators will start a new round of in-person talks today in Istanbul, according to a representative from Kyiv. Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, has agreed to the talks in a call with the president of Turkey. Zelensky initially indicated to Russian reporters that he could accept a neutral position with relation to NATO and that he may be able to reach a compromise on the status of the eastern Donbass region in exchange for an end to the violence. However, Zelensky then took a harder line in a late night video address to the Ukrainian people. A new round of negotiations is ahead of us. We're looking for peace, without delay. As I was informed, there's an opportunity and a need for a face-to-face -face meeting already in Turkey. This isn't bad. Let's look at the result. Our priorities in the negotiations are known. Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity are beyond doubt. Effective security guarantees for our state are mandatory. Our goal is obvious. Peace and the restoration of normal life of our native state as soon as possible. 
Russia's communications watchdog has ordered local media outlets not to publish recent interviews with Zelensky. The watchdog released a statement saying that it's launching a probe into outlets that conducted the interviews, but did not disclose the reasons for the investigation. The White House has sought to clarify that President Biden is not seeking regime change in Russia after the commander-in-chief made the following comments during an address in Warsaw over the weekend. will never be a victory for Russia. For free people refused to live in a world of hopelessness and darkness. We will have a different future, a brighter future, rooted in democracy and principle, hope and light, of decency and dignity, of freedom and possibilities. For God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. Various U.S. officials also sought to place Biden's comments as being specifically about Putin's attack on Ukraine. Secretary of State Antony Blinken sought to reassure the international community that the U.S. is not looking to decide on Russia's leadership. The president, the White House, uh, made the point last night that, quite simply, uh, President Putin cannot be empowered to wage war uh, or engage in aggression uh, against Ukraine uh, or anyone else. As you know, and as you've heard us say repeatedly, we do not have a strategy of regime change in Russia or anywhere else for that matter. Uh, in this case, as in any case, it's up to the people of the country in question. I'm going to pick up on these comments from the weekend from President Biden, and I think it's quite extraordinary the condemnation and the distancing that's taken place in Europe from leaders here about what regime change would really mean and constitute. And you could see the pushback in terms of just upholding the rules of democracy. You don't want to go in and determine the fate of another country in terms of who their leader should be. The sovereignty issues come to the fore because obviously if it can be done in one version in Russia, it would be done elsewhere. And I think there's very clear principles in Europe about not overreaching uh, in terms of what should be decided and also we've seen in the past how this has gone when the Americans have gone into various parts of the world and there has been a, a push for regime change it has led to instability in the past and this is a nation that is sitting on nuclear weapons nobody wants that type of outcome effectively so I think that was a quite an extraordinary comment on the weekend to see the backlash there that the point just around the peace talks today I mean this is uh, interesting the markets are, are looking at this clearly but it doesn't feel as though we've got any real route to peace talks at this point even though they're being hosted there's so so many hurdles still to cross. If you start to pick apart where Ukraine feels that they are at this point around various parts of East Ukraine and where the Russians want to see this demilitarization happen, it doesn't feel as though we're any close to peace at this point. As the resident conspiracy theorist um, on the team, um, let me throw out a conspiracy theorist. Um, was this actually a mistake or did Biden do this deliberately? And, and I tell you why I say that. And even I almost don't believe the cynicism of this perspective. But we've had a couple of polls recently on Biden's popularity, and he is not doing well at all. So uh, NPR Ipsos, 45% of Americans think Biden has been too cautious. 60% plus want the US to give Ukraine the support that it's asking for. AP Nork did a poll, only a quarter of those asked said that they were confident in President Biden's ability to handle the crisis. 56% thought that he hadn't been tough enough. If you are struggling in the polls at this point, and let's remember we do have midterms here, and I hate to frame this story through the argument that there is a political agenda in the United States that the Democrats may be worrying about at this stage, but it does seem to me that if you want to try and convince Americans that you are hardening up your position on 
President Putin, maybe you ad lib a line about how regime change is the ultimate objective here. And I'm not surprised that the rest of the machine is trying to distance itself from those comments. But it's out there, Steve. It's out there. It's been said it can't be taken back. Jeff, I'm sorry, my first words are completely disagreeing with you on a Monday morning. I hear what you're saying. I see what you're saying about the midterms as well. But you've got to look at the historical perspective about war in Europe and American citizens and polling and longer wars in Europe, which could be augured if you start criticising Russia and its regime directly. We know what the desired result may well be, but you just don't say it in public as well. And I'm afraid to say if you look at history, whether it's Woodrow Wilson's decision to take the US into the first World War, the Great War in 1917, with its FDR uh, giving support to the British initially and then entering the war after Pearl Harbor in 1941. The US historically and their citizens do not want to take part in long, tortuous wars in Europe as well. The history is there as well. So what Biden has done by this as well potentially has elongated this conflict, but he's turning it from a war about Ukraine and getting the Russians out of Ukraine to actually talking about regime change in uh, Russia, where, and it's been pointed out by many people as well, so it's not an original thought, the fact of the matter is, Putin remains very popular in large echelons of society. And so by Putin leaving the president's post in Russia, you're not talking about freeing the Russian people. It could bring in another unsavory character as well. I think what Biden's done has been unbelievably careless uh, and, dare I say, undiplomatic as well. I'll pick up on that point around uh, who comes next if there happened to be regime change. Uh, I think that is a great point. Uh, there is a significant uh, lack of clarity here because we know that anyone who would put their head up would effectively be facing uh, security risks at home. So I don't think there's any clear pathway to how regime uh, would change would happen. But uh, I do take your point around planting a seed, though, Jeff, and perhaps you know that seed gets planted, and we know that there are very powerful characters at play in Russia, some with a lot of money, that may be behind uh, wanting to to ensure that the economy is not subject to sanctions for many many years if Putin does stay in charge so you could see that there would be avenues afoot for regime change to take place and perhaps it was trying to to stoke uh, some change to ensure some change happens but again we could ask the question we've seen this in the past where there's been forced handovers it's not been pretty in some countries and I don't think anyone would want an unstable Russia at this point. Uh, does anybody actually know what's going on in the Kremlin at this stage though and I, I would just throw this out at this point um, all of the studies into President Putin's popularity, strangely, in a country where the media is controlled, um, find that he is incredibly popular. I'm not so sure. Those people now who are queuing up to buy sugar, they are queuing up to buy supplies in supermarkets across the country with shelves that are empty. The oligarchs are not particularly happy. Their yachts have been seized. Their properties have been seized unless they've been smart enough to stick them into trusts uh, before that. I don't know who President Putin is popular with these days. Maybe a very small coterie of those who surround him in the Kremlin who continue to advise him that this war is being won by Russia. I don't know. I think it's a bit of a black box and we always have thought of Russian politics as something of a conundrum. But at this stage, I don't know what's going on inside the Kremlin. I don't know who a successor could be at this point. But I do agree with you, Steve, that I think that this was a very incautious remark to make at this point, given where we are in this ongoing conflict. Yeah, I will, I will pick up on, on what you're saying about popularity as well, because you, you are 100% right. Nobody knows 
what the the power brokers in Russia and indeed the popular people are really thinking because of the uh, domination of media by Kremlin-related entities or, or, or lack of independence, should we say, as well. But I, w- I will say something that I found out on my, my, my mini-Baltic tour as well is that um, very, very senior politicians, all the way up to the president in Lithuania, because uh, I said, well, it's, it's just about this elite, isn't it? It's just about Putin who wanted this uh, conflict. Uh, and he said, I'm not so sure... When you look at the responses from the captured Russian troops, they all came up with the same line. Oh, we're conscripts. Oh, we didn't know, what have you. Uh, But a lot of these people have social media. They had contacts with the West. They can see what the West is saying about Vladimir Putin as well. Uh, And there is a theme which I've been reading a lot about of of ultra-nationalism, which may be akin, not perhaps to the the Nazis of the 30s, but actually uh, to what uh, Il Duce uh, put forward in Italy in the 20s, this, this rallying behind the flag the rallying behind ultranationalism as well uh, and that has a lot more support than many people in the West want to see uh, and actually really were prepared to believe in as well. So the theme of ultranationalism as well rather than just the cult of Putin, very important to look into that when looking at the aspirations and, and thoughts of more of a broader part of Russian society rather than just a few power brokers around Putin in the Kremlin. We've got lots to talk about. We have also need to talk about the peace talks as well because I've got a, a very bit, an interesting line on that but we'll get back to that a little bit later on because Total Energy's CEO Patrick Pouyonne has said he will not um, I think it's do business it's supposed to be do not do business with Russia's Vladimir Putin again he told uh, CNBC at the Doha forum that Europe needs to learn from its role in creating dependence on Russian energy in this story there is a, a supplier Russia there is a customer Europe so the question, if he did not force us as well to take his gas, that's true that we created a situation where we are dependent on them. Why? Because it was a low-cost gas. So it's a lesson for all of us. And again, there, why? Because in fact, the more I'm looking to my triangle, you know what dominates the triangle? It is a price. Energy is a fundamental mean of our economy and of life. And today, why do we have crisis in Europe with all the people? Because gasoline is high, gas is high, electricity is high, because we damage their purchasing power. And so I think our society, for long, and particularly in Europe, where our major fight was against inflation. We favored the lowest cost energy, which is just what is happening around the planet. We begin to impact that with climate, and no energy security of supply as a cost. And the real question which is asked to us, how much are we ready to pay for the cost of energy security without Russia? So, yes, we created a sort of monster, but on both sides, you know? And I think, what he, I mean, I, will, I, I attended the meeting where you were invited. I know you did. <laughs> yeah, and I will tell you, I was, for me that day, I remarked, which I was very puzzled, Vladimir Putin knew everything about the European gas market. And I had other experience. It was the first time that I discovered that. So I think, yes, probably, he learned a lot and he discovered that this relationship could be used for, I would say, these Machiavel plans that we, unfortunately, are all facing today. But we have a lot of lessons to be driven from that on many issues. uh, But it has a cost. 
and climate will have a cost, security will have a cost, and so how do we policymakers convince people to accept to pay for these two costs? That's uh, for me, the, and that's, I'm not a policy, I'm not a political leader, I'm just taking care of my company, my duty is to find the best fields in the world, the best plants in the world, to produce at the lowest cost possible, and this is why I'm, love, I love, I'm in love with Saad and Qatar, <laughs> because this takes place here, you know? That was Patrick Puyono, the, the boss of Total Energies as well. Let's take a look at the oil price. Uh, Brent just giving up uh, 3%, that is $3.61, currently trading $1.1704. That isn't about supply issues, that isn't about gas, that is purely about demand issues this morning, ladies and gentlemen, and the fact that there are major concerns about further lockdowns in Shanghai and broader elsewhere on the mainland. Let's get to Dan, though, who's going to give us some of the, uh, the nuances, the subtleties, uh, the backstory on where oil is. Good morning to you, Dan. Steve, good morning to you and good morning, everyone. We're coming to you live from the World Government Summit here in Expo 2020 Dubai this morning, talking about all of these issues as it relates to energy security for Europe and, of course, where that additional supply is going to come, come from to support this market. Now, at the moment, we see oil prices down significantly as we track into the start of European trade. And Steve is exactly right. It's because we see concerns on the demand side right now. Half of Shanghai is going to be locked down for the next four days. The other half locked down for the four days after that. And traders are looking at this situation and they're thinking, well, hang on a second. China, of course, being one of the world's largest consumers of crude oil, it's one of its largest cities going into lockdown, ultimately means we could see that translating into demand moving forward. And that is a concern for this market that has already seen the geopolitical risk premium playing into its own prices over the past couple of weeks. Now, we have been talking about not just oil, but also the gas situation. And this pledge that we've seen from the United States to try and bolster European energy security by sending more of its gas into countries that need it the most. Of course, the concern here uh, is that Russia has been using energy as a weapon. As those conversations continue, we had the opportunity to speak with the former US Energy Secretary, Dan Brulette, earlier on this morning. Here was his take on the current situation and how he sees this uh, ultimately um, very concerning development in Ukraine actually playing out. I asked him whether or not he sees a pathway to uh, escalation here after the uh, president's gaffe in that speech that he made in Poland or a pathway to de-escalation moving forward. He weighed in on both of those issues. But of course, first, the issue regarding European energy security. Take a listen. Germany had become too dependent upon Russian gas. We pointed this out to the Germans, but of course they had a different plan at that moment in time. And no one likes to be in the business of saying, I told you so, so we're not going to do that. But nonetheless, we're seeing the results of inaction two, three, four, five years ago. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad to see the Biden administration and the, uh, the deal that was cut with the EU. I think it's very important. Uh, we have to stand by that deal. The industry will do so. The private industry will do so. Uh, but we'll have to work with both governments to see what we can do to fill this gap if they are indeed going to move away from Russian gas. The former U.S. Energy Secretary Dan Brulette there in conversation with us earlier on this morning. Of course, operationally, logistically, it's going to be quite challenging to get that gas into Europe. The big question at the moment within the entire energy sector, not just in gas, but also in oil, is what is the spare production capacity actually looking like? The world needs as much energy as it can possibly get right now. And there is real challenges in delivering it to countries that need it the most. In terms of what else we're looking out for this week, of course, we're coming into what will be probably one of the most important, at least one of the most interesting OPEC plus meetings 
uh, it is uh, likely that we will see that group uh, continuing to maintain the status quo here, uh, adding 400,000 barrels per day to the market as of next month. Of course, OPEC a little hesitant to help out the United States when it comes to this situation with Ukraine because it's looking for security guarantees, including countries like the UAE and Saudi Arabia, uh, which are pretty concerned about how all of this is tracking and also uh, no real questions about where their own allegiances lie. So we have a lot more guests coming up for you over the next couple of days. We bring you all insights and analysis from the World Government Summit here in Dubai. Jeff, with that, it's back over to you. Terrific, Dan. Thank you so much for that and looking forward to the rest of the coverage. Still to come on the program, a tale of two cities. Chinese officials split Shanghai in two in an effort to curb the spread of COVID. We'll explain more in just a moment. And for more on today's Russia-Ukraine peace talks, you can check out Squawkbox podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Plenty for markets to digest at the moment uh, around interest rates as investors continue to watch what they think now is a much more aggressive rate hiking cycle. Uh, there have been notes out from some of the big investment banks about the potential for 50 basis point moves now or that uh, a series of meetings this year, which is a, a fairly significant step up from a 25 basis point hike anticipated at remaining meetings. So we're now talking about eight hikes at the six meetings. Uh, so it's a uh, fairly extraordinary moves that are being priced in. And the terminal rate, now big question marks where we end up on interest rates. So this is a worrying backdrop for a lot of investors. Of course, the geopolitics still firmly in the mix as we watched these peace talks today between Russia and Ukraine. The market also eyeing a two-part shutdown in China, in Shanghai in particular, with manufacturing hubs uh, set to be closed or with some remote working taking place. And given the problems we've had in supply chains and provoked further inflation, this is a big one for markets too. So very different factors to watch. And as we round out the week, we'll be watching the data with the uh, non-farm payrolls report. So the markets at this stage, you can see, have been actually somewhat resilient despite all of those threats. So we bounced again on the major markets. You can see four tenths on the Dow, half a percent on the S&P Friday session. The Nasdaq coming up a little bit, but that said, what a week it was in the face of some of those interest rate fears. We still bounced close to 2% on the Nasdaq. Second pause a week in a row. So uh, take this little bit of red ink aside from the Friday trade. It's still been a very strong trading pattern. The big question is what comes next as we continue to see now this rate path and the question marks for a lot of investors around just how steep this curve will be. And take a look at the Treasury markets. You can already see some fear in the bond markets at a potential hard landing, the inversion of the yield curve now, the fives at 2.63%. We're trading on that yield versus 2.53 on the 10 years. So the inversion typically can signal some sign of imminent recession. Uh, and usually it's the two and the fives that the market starts to worry uh, when this is taking place. We're at 2.38 and the two year, 2.56 on the 10 year. We've also seen very steep moves in this uh, yield curve on the uh, 33 basis points last week is what we saw on the 10 year treasury yield. So up about 67 basis points in the month. That is a very strong move for such a, a safe haven trade. So this is an area of the market. I think a lot of investors are fixated 
updated on this week. I want to take you to the implications for the dollar as we continue to watch the yield. And obviously, uh, when there's a, a strong yield story, it can provide dollar support in uh, contrast to that. We've also had the BOJ stepping into the markets again, trying to maintain that yield curve control. It uh, was a question investors were asking last week. And as we've seen, that dollar has again climbed. And we're seeing this further free fall for the Japanese yen, 123 at the handle today. Elsewhere, sterling euro on the back foot versus the US dollar. You can see the strength taking place on those currencies and also perhaps a slight risk off move, which is interesting uh, to watch that given the peace talks, the conversation we've had around Russia, Ukraine, when typically those talks are slated, you can see a bit more risk appetite. But I think at this stage, investors are stewing around the central bank story. Let me take you to Asian markets. Uh, this is how the trade looks today. Japanese stocks reversing. Shanghai too, as we talk about uh, the need for further COVID restrictions. The market, they're trading down by about a tenth of a percent. Hong Kong seeing a bit of a pop. There was a story about the US and China trying to get through some of the differences over auditing. And don't forget the big uh, sell-off in some of those technology names around potential audits and delisting from the United States has been a, a huge theme for the tech uh, sector. But uh, we've got a bounce there today, 1.3 plus percent. Australia very much trapped around the flat line. The uh, market still also eyeing that commodity story. Clearly, the China COVID restrictions is a slight pushback, perhaps, to the demand story. But I think a lot of investors believe medium term there is enough inflationary pressure to support the commodities complex, Jeff. Thanks very much indeed, Karen. Um, let's talk China. Industrial profit growth has followed other economic indicators higher, even as the situation in Ukraine and growing COVID cases in China have clouded the outlook. Profits for January to February came in 5% higher on the year compared to a 4.2% rise in December. Figures from January and February are combined to mitigate the impact of Lunar New Year on production figures. Uh, Shanghai has launched a two-stage lockdown, splitting the city into two for nine days to allow for a staggered testing process. Shanghai's eastern half will be locked down first, followed by its western side starting from Friday. This after the city's local government had previously denied it would lock down the city's 26 million residents. However, new figures on Sunday revealed record cases accounting for nearly 70% of the total nationwide. Tesla is set to suspend operations at its Shanghai Gigafactory for at least a day, according to reports. The plant, which produces vehicles for export throughout Asia and Europe, has already had to shut down once this month amid growing COVID cases. Tesla is yet to confirm or comment on its plans. Let's get to Sam, who has more detail on the data and the Tesla story. Good morning, Sam. Good morning to you, Jeff. And as you say, there's a lot of layers to this story when you look at the macro front and also the impact that this is having right now on some of those factories like Tesla. We're actually seeing reports that this could be shut, this factory over in Shanghai, for around four days now. And this seems to be in response to this very strict lockdown, as you clearly pointed out. It is a bit of a surprise move, you could say, from authorities. It's somewhat of a U-turn and a bit of a 180, given that authorities had been adamant 
government not to put uh, Shanghai into a full lockdown to avoid some of these economic disruptions. And certainly that is what President Xi Jinping had been calling for, suggesting that he wanted to minimise the impact somewhat. But we have now seen uh, not a Wuhan-style lockdown, but certainly authorities splitting this up into two stages over some nine days. And this is as they do carry out that mass testing uh, on 26 million or so residents over in Shanghai. And the way that they have done this is basically got the Huangpu River, which runs through the middle of Shanghai and split it up into the east and west. As you say, the east put into lockdown starting from today until Friday. This started at around 5 a.m. this morning. This is what, if anybody knows, has been to Shanghai. It's called the Pudong side, where the Shanghai Tower is located. On Friday, the west will then uh, do the same. Residents didn't get much notice about this. Uh, they really didn't have much time to prepare. This snap lockdown was announced by authorities yesterday, as I say, bit of a surprise move which did prompt a bit of a mad rush as one could imagine to the supermarket to stock up on all that food and certainly necessities. In terms of what this lockdown looks like, residents are confined uh, certainly to their neighbourhoods. Uh, transport has been suspended. We are seeing factories are being urged uh, to certainly halt production as well. The likes of Tesla we are seeing has had to uh, suspend production for a couple of days as well. So no doubt investors are weighing uh, the economic cost of all of this and certainly that did drown out what was some impressive you could say data out over the weekend with profits at Chinese industrial firms jumping some five percent although you could say that that data probably doesn't capture the full extent of what is going on in China at the moment. March will tell a lot better story and we will be getting those PMI figures out later in the week to see how the manufacturers and the services sector is holding up. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.